The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Rewriting the Treatment Script in CLL, Guidance on Integrating Modern Targeted and Next-Gen Options into Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JJJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. All right, I think we'll get started. Uh, thanks so much for attending our conference tonight. Uh, I love the title. We're rewriting the script or the treatment script in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This is guidance on integrating modern, targeted, and next-gen options into patient care. Uh, tonight's presentation uh, includes some amazing panelists uh, who were hand-selected for their expertise in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I'm Anthony Mato from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I wasn't talking about myself, but I was talking about Catherine Coombs from UNC, Matt Davids from Dana-Farber, and Nicole Lamana from Columbia. Here uh, we have some information about targeted therapy. Uh, these are the FDA approvals and current status of several drugs for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Right now, we have two BTK inhibitors that are approved for treating patients with CLL. Those include ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. We have another covalent BTK inhibitor, zanubrutinib, that's been uh, studied extensively in the frontline and relapse setting. Uh, we have phase three data from the Sequoia trial. We have pirtobrutinib, uh, which is a uh, um, non-covalent BTK inhibitor, which is uh, being studied uh, in a phase one, two setting, as well as several randomized phase three trials. Venetoclax, a BCL2 inhibitor, is approved for CLL, and we have two PI3K inhibitors that are approved in the relapse refractory setting, idelalisib and duvalisib. Despite these advances, there's still um, important need for um, additional work to be done, and some of the uh, evidence that's really helping to guide where the field needs to go is evidence that comes from real-world data. And I'll just highlight two data sets that came from the ASH 2021 meeting. Uh, one data set of over 3,000 patients really helped to identify an important uh, gap in the way that we're performing prognostic testing. If you look at the NCCN guidelines or the IWCLL or, or many others, there's an important emphasis on the need to perform prognostic testing, IGHV testing, FISH testing for all patients prior to the start of CLL-directed therapy. And this particular data set identified that more than 50% of patients did not have appropriate risk factor testing performed and it was more commonly not done in vulnerable patient populations. And then in an independent data set from the informed CLL, more uh, information came out about the importance of prognostic testing, uh, in particular, how these results are interpreted. And you know, I think it was quite interesting to note that for patients who actually had a deletion 17P or a TP53 mutation, over a third of those patients still did not receive what would be considered state-of-the-art therapy as per the NCCN recommendations. Essentially, in modern times, patients with a deletion 17P are still getting chemoimmunotherapy combinations in the country. That's a major problem. Um, but even, um, even a more important problem is that the vast majority of patients who participated in this registry did not have appropriate prognostic testing performed. So there's a vast unknown uh, prior to the start of CLL-directed therapy. So tonight we're calling this a master class, and you are all the students of this uh, master class, and I'm going to share our agenda. Number one, how we're going to discuss how innovative targeted therapy became the present of CLL. Uh, present in terms of standard of care and really change the way that all of us are managing our patients. The future is the second part of the presentation uh, for CLL therapy, looking at novel combination therapy to sequential strategies. 
And then uh, third, case-based discussions linked to each masterclass lecture. So we'll give you the lecture, and then we'll go into the cases, have a conversation, and hopefully that will inspire uh, questions from the audience for us to discuss further. I want to thank again our partner, the CLL Society, uh, for um, their partnership in this event and for all that they do for patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I won't be able to get into all of the details, but this is an excellent resource for professionals, patients, and caregivers, and you'll have access to the slides so you can review this information uh, in detail from this long list of um, potential resources that are available for our patients and for our practices. And without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce Dr. Matthew Davids, who is the Associate Professor of Medicine from Harvard Medical School, Director of Clinical Research for the Division of Lymphoma at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Matt is going to be uh, presenting a new script for managing CLL, choosing customized initial therapy with targeted agents. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Anthony, for the kind introduction. And I've been tasked with kind of bringing us up to speed on how we got to where we are in the present day in CLL with targeted therapies. And I'll also have the opportunity to review some of the more recent updates to the large clinical trials that have been done in this space, including some data that are going to be presented here at ASCO and at EHA next week. So I thought we would just start with the NCCN guidelines here. And really, I think a key theme is that BTK inhibitors and the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax are, are really our preferred regimens for most patients now in the treatment-naive setting. So it's amazing how quickly this has changed. Even three, four years ago, we were having big debates about chemoimmunotherapy versus a BTK inhibitor, and really this related to the age of the patients, specific comorbidities. But what you can see here in the NCCN guidelines now is that regardless of the patient's age uh, or, or fitness generally, we're, we're recommending these novel agent-based approaches. So you can see the Category 1 recommendations are the BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib or ibrutinib. With acalabrutinib, you can give it with or without obinutuzumab. We'll review some of the data on that. Uh, and then you see venetoclax plus obinutuzumab, the time-limited therapy, also listed on uh, both categories, younger patients, older patients. You see xanabrutinib appearing there as well, although it does not yet have a label in CLL because it's approved it can be used off-label in certain scenarios. And then you do still see chemoimmunotherapy listed as an other recommended regimen, whether it's BR in the older patients or FCR in, in younger patients. And I think maybe when we get into the cases, we'll talk a little bit about some of the nuances of when you may still consider chemoimmunotherapy. One situation where you certainly would not consider chemoimmunotherapy is in high-risk patients, defined as deletion 17P or TP53 mutation. And there you see only novel agent regimens listed as preferred. And then on the right side, you can see some of the more kind of historical regimens that we don't tend to use very much these days, although can be considered in very select cases. So this slide summarizes a ton of data. These are all phase three studies of, of the novel agents, and many of these were registrational trials used to support the approvals of these agents in both the frontline setting and the relapsed refractory setting. Probably the, the most robust data sets right now still come from ibrutinib, where we have the longest follow-up. So you can see Resonate 2, the study that led to the initial full approval of ibrutinib in the frontline setting, which showed both a superior PFS and OS compared to chlorambucil. Illuminate, which showed superiority of abrutinib with obinutuzumab compared to chlorambucil with obinutuzumab. We'll, we'll dive into one of the recent updates on ECOG1912, which is an important study for younger fit patients comparing abrutinib with rituximab to FCR, which actually showed an overall survival benefit for abrutinib-based therapy. And then the Alliance study also, which showed a superior PFS of abrutinib-based treatment versus BR. With acalabrutinib, the data are not quite as mature yet, but still very robust, large phase three studies, including Elevate-TN. We'll review some data on that study comparing acalabrutinib with or without obinutuzumab to obinutuzumab with chlorambucil. 
the relapse setting, we have the ASCEND study comparing acalabrutinib to either a PF3 kinase inhibitor or BR. And then the Elevate RR study, which is the head-to-head comparison of ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. With xanabrutinib, we've just recently seen the registrational study Sequoia with an initial readout comparing xanabrutinib to BR. And we'll also briefly review data from Alpine comparing xanabrutinib to ibrutinib. And then finally, we'll touch on some of the updated data for CLL14 with venetoclax obinutuzumab versus obinutuzumab chlorambucil, and then Murano in the relapse setting of VEN-R versus BR. So let's focus on some of these recent updates to the major trials that I just reviewed. So first, we just saw a publication a little over a month ago from the Resonate 2 study. This is now eight-year follow-up of frontline abrutinib compared to chlorambucil. You can see these curves are widely divergent as they've been for several years. This is remarkable because it's the longest follow-up to date that we have with a single agent BTK inhibitor in the phase three setting. Clearly there's a sustained PFS benefit of ibrutinib, which is not that surprising, but I think what is a little bit surprising and, and pretty remarkable is that there's still close to 60% of patients who are progression-free on ibrutinib at seven years. And this benefit is similar in patients with mutated versus unmutated IGHV. This is really unprecedented in the, in the history of CLL, where with every chemoimmunotherapy regimen, unmutated IGHV patients always had shorter progression-free survival. So here we're seeing a drug that, at least when given continuously, can provide similar benefit, even in those higher-risk patients with unmutated IGHV. I mentioned also that ECOG 1912 was just recently updated, and this was another publication uh, just over a month ago in Blood, looking at these younger fit patients all under the age of 70 who were treated either with continuous abrutinib with a six-month initial combination with rituximab or a standard six-month course of FCR. And as we had seen previously, there was a PFS benefit for abrutinib-based therapy. Uh, the gap is widening a bit now with five years of follow-up. 78% of the abrutinib-treated patients are progression-free compared to 51% with FCR. And importantly, as you see in the bullet at the bottom, the PFS benefit is now being observed both in IGHV unmutated as well as IGHV mutated subgroups. Previously in the, in the prior paper in New England Journal, IGHV mutated patients had equivalent PFS. So that's a pretty remarkable finding. And I think in the cases, we might get into some of the nuances of why that's important. The overall survival benefit, as you see on the right, is also preserved, as was seen in the prior publication, about a 6% absolute improvement in overall survival at five years with abrutinib-based therapy. Now, interestingly, we also saw at ASH for the first time data from the FLARE study in the UK. This is a very large trial in, in about 1,500 patients with previously untreated CLL with four different arms. And what they presented at ASH was just the two arms comparing chemoimmunotherapy with FCR to ibrutinib with rituximab. So very similar to the design that I just showed you for the ECOG study. In this study, they did allow some even older patients up to age 75. Uh, so... Um, Probably not patients, at least in, in the U.S., that we'd be treating with FCR, uh, but most of the patients were young and fit on this study. And just like with ECOG-1912, there's a significant improvement in progression-free survival with continuous abrutinib uh, compared to the FCR regimen. The median PFS has not yet been reached with abrutinib compared to about 66 months here with FCR. And the PFS benefit was, again, better with the unmutated patients with abrutinib-based treatment, but not yet, at least, for the IGHV um, mutated patients. It was, it was improved with the unmutated patients, not mutated. But here, I think it's interesting that there's no overall survival benefit to abrutinib-based therapy compared to FCR. So we don't quite know why that is yet. And maybe that in the time frame when this study was done, there was more availability of novel agents in the relapse setting. And so maybe you can salvage these patients if they progress early on FCR. Uh, but I, I think it does a little bit kind of call into question you know, the robustness of the overall survival benefit that we saw in the other study. 
Now, what about acalabrutinib? So although the phase three studies don't have as long-term follow-up as ibrutinib, there is this original kind of earlier phase one, two study, about 99 patients with previously untreated CLL that now has 53 months of follow-up. And you can see that these patients continue to do very well. And the overall group of patients, the 48-month PFS is close to 96%. And even in the high-risk patients with TB53 aberration, it's still an 82% PFS at four years. So we do now have some longer-term follow-up from Elevate-TN. This is the frontline trial of acalabrutinib with or without obinutuzumab compared to chlorambucil plus obinutuzumab. These are the four-year data that I'm showing here, and I think they're remarkable for two things. One is that both acalabrutinib-containing arms, those are the top two curves, were superior to chlorambucil plus obinutuzumab. That was one of the main endpoints of the study. Not a huge surprise. But what did surprise us a little bit was the improvement in progression-free survival in acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab compared to acalabrutinib alone, about a 9% absolute improvement in PFS at four years, with the caveat that this was a post-hoc analysis. The study wasn't really powered to look for a difference here, but nonetheless, I think it is intriguing to wonder whether obinutuzumab may add some benefit here. And I'll highlight that the five-year data are going to be presented in poster form at this meeting, as well as at EHI by our colleague Jeff Sharman, and, and really show very similar findings as, as what's shown here, uh, really in particular uh, the PFS benefits. And then interestingly, in, in that presentation, I believe there's also an overall survival benefit that's now emerged between the acalaobin and chlorambucil obinutuzumab. What about sanibrutinib? So again, not yet approved in CLL, uh, but this registrational study we think is likely to lead to a, to a label in frontline CLL. This is Sequoia comparing continuous sanibrutinib to a standard six-month course of BR. This main part of the study here excluded patients with high-risk disease, deletion 17P. And we saw these data for the first time at the ASH meeting just a few months ago. The follow-up is still quite short, just a little over two years in a frontline study. But nonetheless, I think looks very promising. 86% PFS for xanabrutinib at two years compared to 70% with BR. And these benefits with xanabrutinib were really extended across the different subgroups, whether looking by different age categories or stage or bulky disease or, or cytogenetics. And again, most of the benefit here is seen in patients with unmutated IGHV. There's no difference in PFS, at least at this point, in terms of the mutated IGHV patients. So those were the main three BTK inhibitor studies I wanted to show. Now let's switch gears a little bit and talk about time-limited therapy with venetoclax plus obinutuzumab. So just as a reminder, this is about a six-month combination of ven-obin followed by an additional six months of ven-monotherapy, and then all patients stop at one year. And this was compared to a one-year course of chlorambucil with an initial six months of obinutuzumab. And we've seen these data published and presented a number of times, but what I wanted to highlight is some curves you may not have seen yet because these really just came out. These are going to be presented for the first time at the EHA meeting next week. We've seen from the abstract that now with five years of data, the estimated PFS with venobin is still 62.6%. And certainly that's superior to obinutuzumab chlorambucil. But I do think it's quite remarkable because remember here, you're only talking about one year of therapy. You can see that vertical line marks the end of treatment. And yet most patients have remained progression-free. Uh, you'll see there are certain higher-risk subsets that have started to progress after this regimen. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. One uh, notable aspect of Venobin is that patients often achieve undetectable minimal residual disease, and this, this is a, a valid goal, I think, for our time-limited therapies to try to really maximize depth of response because that can hopefully increase the duration of response. And so you can see on the graph on the left that about three-quarters of the patients get to undetectable MRD in the blood, 57% in the bone marrow. And in this landmark MRD analysis from the time of end of treatment on the right, you can see that, un uh, that uh, undetectable MRD patients had a longer PFS either compared to patients who had sort of low levels of MRD or certainly compared to patients who had high MRD at the end of treatment. 
I'm going to move on to targeted therapy in higher risk CLL specifically. So by higher risk, there's sort of different ways to define it. Truly high risk CLL is when there's an actual deletion of chromosome 17P or a somatic mutation in TP53. Sometimes you'll hear us talking about higher risk CLL, which is more unmutated IGHV. So that's sort of the distinction there. So if, if we look at true high risk CLL with deletion 17P from the chemotherapy era, you can see from the original landmark paper in the New England Journal now over 20 years ago, this is the Derner paper on the left, that patients with deletion 17P had a median overall survival of only about two to three years. So I really think that puts the ibrutinib data in, in context and emphasizes how, how revolutionary BTK inhibitors are for patients with high-risk CLL. And you see that on the right, data from my colleague Inye An, uh, where you can see that the uh, patients treated with ibrutinib with high-risk disease are still uh, surviving about 80% at six years. So really a remarkable improvement in overall survival compared to what we had with chemotherapy and really led to BTK inhibitors being the frontline therapy of choice for high-risk disease. And this has been confirmed now in a number of other studies. This is a nice pooled analysis put together by John Allen, looking at patients treated with either single-agent ibrutinib or ibrutinib with CD20 antibodies. This was close to 90 patients, uh, all with deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, median follow-up of a little bit over four years, and still the median PFS not yet reached, close to 80% PFS at four years. So very promising results for this drug. Also with acalabrutinib, uh, looks very similar, I would say, so far in these high-risk patients. These are the data from Elevate TN, specifically looking at the patients with TP53 aberrant disease. You can see the PFS is not quite as high as it was in the overall population. It's still about three-quarters of patients at four years. Um, so certainly still very good uh, good results here. And, and actually at the EHA meeting, I have a poster that's a pooled analysis of acalabrutinib regimens across a number of different studies of, of acalabrutinib, uh, so larger numbers than what you see here with Elevate TN. And really the results look quite similar. About 75% of patients are progression-free with high-risk disease at four years. Xanabrutinib actually has the largest single cohort of patients with deletion 17P. This is one of the arms of the Sequoia study where these were all high-risk patients. They were all treated with xanabrutinib monotherapy. The follow-up's still pretty short here, about 30 months, but the 24-month PFS is 89%. So this, this also looks to be an excellent option for these patients. Now, what about high-risk patients and time-limited treatment? So this is a little bit getting into higher versus high risk. So on the left is the higher risk patients. These are patients with unmutated IGHV. And those patients can still do well with venobin, although you do tend to see progression events a little bit sooner than patients with mutated IGHV. Median PFS for unmutated patients is, is in the range of about 57 months, whereas with mutated IGHV patients treated with venobin, there's no median that's been reached yet. And this difference is even more striking when you look on the right. These are the data from the five-year PFS update that's going to be presented next week at EHA. And you can see those patients with deletion 17P. That's the kind of darker blue line. It dips down, you know, a little, little bit faster than the rest of the patient population, particularly after the 12-month mark when the patients stop treatment. And so the median PFS for this group is around four years, uh, which is certainly shorter than patients on continuous BTK inhibitor therapy, although you know, we may get to this in the discussion. Remember, these patients have only had one year of treatment. And we do think that many of these patients could benefit from retreatment with venetoclax-based therapy, although we don't really have data yet to support that approach. There's a study that just launched called Revenge, or Revenge, retreatment with venetoclax plus obinutuzumab. It's going to hopefully help us to answer that question. All right. And then the last section that I'm going to cover is obviously a very important one for our patients, which is principles of safety management with the targeted agents. 
So this slide kind of really summarizes some of the key toxicities that we see with BTK inhibitors on the left and venetoclax on the right. So with BTK inhibitors, as, as most of you know, we have cardiovascular risks. There's the arthralgias, bleeding risks, hypertension, diarrhea. Infection, of course, is common across all the therapies we use in CLL. Uh, additional important AEs, we do sometimes see dermatologic changes with these drugs, fatigue, cytopenias, and particularly with abrutinib, there have been ventricular arrhythmias described. In terms of venetoclax, TLS is the one that everyone thinks of first, but actually it's quite uncommon with venetoclax when it's given with the proper dosing as per the label. Uh, and so it's very important to follow the label when using venetoclax and monitor patients closely for TLS. I'll give you some, some tips a little bit later on about how we do that. But much more common than TLS is gastrointestinal events. We often see mild diarrhea when patients start on venetoclax, also mild nausea. It's relatively common. These tend to settle out over time and, and can be self-limited or, or um, improved with with very minimal supportive care. Infections are a concern, of course, across all of our therapies, and we do see some myelosuppression from venetoclax, particularly neutropenia, and so we do need to monitor neutrophil counts. Sometimes patients do need growth factor support when they're on venetoclax, and if that's not as helpful as you'd like, sometimes dose reductions are necessary. So a few sort of pearls around BTK inhibitors. One of them is that just sort of by way of how the drugs were developed, they weren't really studied in the context of warfarin therapy. And so we do tend to prefer other anticoagulants if we need to put patients on anticoagulation. For example, if a patient does develop new onset AFib and they need to stay on a BTK inhibitor, uh, we typically would like to put them on a, a DOAC or, or a low molecular weight heparin is also fine. Uh, we see hypertension fairly commonly with BTK inhibitors, and we, we tend to need to manage that with antihypertensives. It's something you can easily miss in clinic if, if you're not watching for it, uh, but definitely watch for it because we see it commonly. Uh, we need to monitor for cardiac dysrhythmias and treat appropriately, and then, of course, monitor patients for bleeding and remind them to hold their BTK numbers before and after procedures. Certain toxicities like headaches are a little bit more common with particular drugs like acalabrutinib, uh, typically are in the first couple months and can be managed with acetaminophen and caffeine. Xanabrutinib seems to have a little more neutropenia, so that's something we need to monitor for there. And again, always monitoring for infections and secondary malignancies, particularly secondary skin malignancies, which are quite common in CLL patients. So we're fortunate now that we have a robust data set of a head-to-head -head comparison of abrutinib to acalabrutinib. This is the Elevate RR study, which was just published last year. And this was a non-inferiority study and confirmed that acalabrutinib is non-inferior to ibrutinib from an efficacy perspective. This is the PFS primary endpoint. Median PFS was 38.4 months in both arms, so a hazard ratio of 1.00, very easy number to remember. But where they did see differences in this study was around the rates of AEs, particularly some of the cardiovascular events. So AFib was 9% with acalabrutinib compared to 16% with ibrutinib. And none of the patients who had AFib on the acalabrutinib arm had to discontinue, whereas seven of the patients in the ibrutinib arm did, uh, suggesting that perhaps the AFib in the ibrutinib arm was a little more difficult to manage. Uh, you can see hypertension rates were also lower with acalabrutinib, about 9% versus 23% with ibrutinib. Lower rates of bleeding events, 38% versus 51%, although the rates of major bleeding events were similar at around 4 to 5%. And again, infections, unfortunately, are quite common, close to 80% in both arms of the study. And I like this graphical representation of the toxicities. It gives you a sense for the incidence of, for example, diarrhea and arthralgia over time. And you can see pretty early on that line for abrutinib, which is the red there, go, goes up above the acalabrutinib line and kind of hangs, hangs above there throughout the course of therapy up to four years and beyond. Uh, you tend to see higher rates of diarrhea and arthralgias on ibrutinib. 
Now, there's also a head-to-head -head study of xanabrutinib versus ibrutinib. This is called the Alpine study. And this study was a little bit different in, in its design. The primary endpoint was actually overall response rate. And we got kind of a sneak peek of this study last year at EHA. It was a very early analysis, and there did seem to be an, a higher overall response rate for xanabrutinib, 78%, versus ibrutinib, 62%. We saw a press release recently suggesting actually maybe that gap is starting to close with time. Um, and you see a, a little bit of a PFS advantage early on with xanabrutinib here. Uh, but I emphasize that the median follow-up is very short here for both arms, so I wouldn't read too much into any differences in efficacy here. Uh, but what I think is very val valid from this study already is the safety comparison. And, and like with acalabrutinib, you can see that that uh, line stays very low for AFib with xanabrutinib, very low rates of AFib over time, even as the rates kind of continue to creep up with ibrutinib. And I think a good overall measure of tolerability for a drug is the rate of treatment discontinuation. And that was 8% in the xanabrutinib group versus 13% in the abrutinib group. So it does favor also xanabrutinib. With venetoclax, uh, this was analysis that I, I helped to lead looking across the early phase program of venetoclax development, about 350 patients. And we looked at sort of the timing of the onset of some of these toxicities. Uh, on the left side is cytopenias, on the right side is gastrointestinal side effects. And the different um, bars at the bottom represent days on study. So the first block there is sort of the first month and then the next three months, et cetera, kind of up to a year and beyond. And it gives you a sense visually, especially with the cytopenias, they tend to occur early on, tends to be mostly neutropenia. And you don't tend to see the new onset of cytopenias late, although it certainly can happen. And similarly with gastrointestinal side effects, although the, the ongoing prevalence of gastrointestinal AEs does tend to be a little bit higher over time uh, compared to baseline. And you can see that using the, the current dosing regimen of venetoclax that's approved, only two, two patients out of 166, 1.4%, had any biochemical laboratory changes consistent with TLS, but none of these patients had any clinical sequelae of TLS. So a few other pearls of management with venetoclax for the myelosuppression. We do sometimes need to dose interrupt, although for most patients, I usually try growth factor with GCSF first. If they have very significant neutropenia, like an ANC less than 500, I may hold drug temporarily or, or give prophylactic antibiotics until it comes up. Certainly need to monitor closely for infections, and we do usually hold pa patients venetoclax if they're having a more serious infection, grade 3, 4 infection. Uh, with diarrhea, you know, it's always important to rule out infectious causes, but most of these patients can be successfully treated with antidiarrheals and, and hydration. And nausea, sometimes little tricks like changing the timing of the dosing or when you take it in relation to meals can be helpful. And we don't tend to administer live vaccines really for any CLL patients at any, at any time. So this is my last slide, um, I think. So uh, just a few other kind of approaches of, of how we, we think about TLS monitoring in, in venetoclax-treated patients. You need to assess for TLS risk, and really the key things here are looking at the absolute lymphocyte count and the bulk of lymph node disease. And remember that sometimes the lymph nodes can be hiding on the inside, and so we, we always like to get a pretreatment CAT scan in patients who are treating with venetoclax to understand their burden of internal lymphadenopathy. And we pre-medicate all the patients with allopurinol um, and, or equivalent if they're allergic. We ensure adequate hydration. And if patients have a higher risk of TLS, if they have high ALC or if they have a large lymph node mass, particularly if it's greater than 10 centimeters internally, these are patients where we need to employ more careful monitoring, sometimes even hospitalization, to keep a very close eye on them. And I'll just highlight the little link at the bottom there. There are some valuable tools for, from the CLL Society. This can be very confusing to patients trying to explain all the nuances of starting venetoclax, but there's a CLL Society toolkit, which has been very helpful for a lot of our patients to understand some of those nuances. All right, so with that, uh, I will conclude my remarks. I'm gonna turn things over to Dr. Lamana, who's gonna lead the discussion on customizing treatment with upfront options. Thank you. So what we're gonna do is talk about some cases and kinda 
everything that Dr. David's presented and sort of put it into context with actual cases. So here we have Susan. She's an older patient with symptomatic treatment, naive CLL. So she's 74, um, and she was on an extensive period of watch and wait. Um, and her, she has comorbid, she has some diabetes, but well-controlled hypertension. So here now, a white count of 245,000 with a hemoglobin of 10.8 and a platelet count of 72,000. She has some abdominal adenopathy, maximum is four sonometers. She has some splenomegaly up to 19 sonometers, but her performance status is good. Her creatinine clearance is 53, and she has an unmutated IGHV. So given everything that we just discussed earlier, um, what are the options for this patient? Now that she has symptomatic CLL, and remember, she, we know she has diabetes and well-controlled hypertension, and she has an unmutated IGHV. We can consider continuous BTK monotherapy, time-limited venetoclax and obinutuzumab. Is there any role for chemoimmunotherapy? Hmm. What do you think, Matt? <laughs> All right, so I can, I can start, and then you guys can, can jump in. Since but... it was your master class. That's right. So... <laughs> So this is a pretty typical CLL patient. She's in her mid-70s. She has a couple of comorbidities. She's been on watch and wait for a while. The first question, of course, is always, does this patient need treatment? And you know, by IWCL criteria, this patient clearly does. She has uh, significant thrombocytopenia, hemoglobin's pretty borderline, uh, good-sized nodes and, and spleen. So you know, definitely this is a patient I'm thinking needs to start treatment. She has unmutated IGHV, so she's sort of in that higher risk category, but not truly high risk. No, no TP53 aberrancy. So uh, this is a patient where I would certainly discuss both continuous BTK inhibitor therapy and time-limited VENG. I probably would try to dissuade her from chemoimmunotherapy, particularly because of the unmutated IGHV. You know, I think, you know, when you have mutated IGHV, maybe that's part of the conversation. But as I showed you, like in those studies comparing novel agent to chemoimmunotherapy, there's very profound improvements in progression-free survival in the unmutated IGHV population. So, you know, a lot of this will then come down to what specific comorbidities does the patient have? She has some hypertension and diabetes, so those are sort of relatively contraindicated, certainly not absolute contraindications to BTK inhibitors. But, you know, I'm kind of thinking venetoclax-based therapy might be a good option for this patient. It's time-limited, and we don't have to worry about cardiovascular risks. But certainly if the patient wanted a continuous BTK inhibitor, I think that's very reasonable too. Yeah. I, fair enough. I mean, I think that, as you said, I think there are multiple options that you can consider for her. Both BTK and venetoclax are reasonable. It, it's a time-limited approach. You're going to discuss those pros and cons because clearly she's 74. What are her social circumstances for coming back and forth? You know, can she do that with a fixed duration? And so because uh, I agree with you clearly because she's unmutated, I think we'd avoid chemoimmunotherapy. And then you talk about that, you know, risk-benefit of time-limited versus chronic continuous therapy. So both are definitely definitely uh, suitable options, I think, for her, depending upon her desires as well. And just to, just to sort of reinforce what Dr. Davids went over, over earlier, obviously the evidence from those pivotal studies really show that the targeted agents over chemoimmunotherapy in older unfit individuals, and those are from the Alliance study, Illuminate, Elevate TN, the Sequoia, and CL14. So all of them demonstrated a PFS benefit uh, over more traditional chemoimmunotherapy for this patient, and particularly because, again, uh, of her unmutated status. Again, I think we'd move away from chemoimmunotherapy, but both of these options are good also, as I said, for older fit individuals as well and unfit individuals. And then let's move on. So what now if Susan had higher risk disease? So same individual, she's 74 years old, same blood counts, uh, obviously same disease burden. She's unmutated, but now she has a TP53 mutation on NGS. 
So given what we talked about earlier, do the options change based on the presence of her TP53 mutation, continuous BTK therapy versus time-limited therapy with venetoclax and obinutuzumab? Is there any role for chemoimmunotherapy? And hopefully we dissuaded that earlier. But um, uh, should I throw that down the road? <laughs> I'd be happy to tackle that question. So, I mean, things do change a bit when we have the presence of a TP53 mutation. Um, I would even more strongly discourage chemoimmunotherapy. Patients perform just very um, uh, horribly because they have a very short PFS and all of the toxicities. Um, but, you know, I think the balance tips a bit um, when you think about continuous BTKI versus time-limited VEG. And so from Follow-up, um, as Matt already mentioned from the CLL14 trial, um, the patients with TP53 aberrations do have a shorter PFS when compared to other patients, but it's still not that bad in my view. It's 49 months, so a little over four years. Um, so I personally do offer both of these therapies for my patients with TP53. I know um, there are some people with the viewpoint that continuous BTKI is the right answer. Um, I think it does give the longest continuous PFS, um, but we, you know, are on an agent indefinitely that may come with chronic toxicities. And um, the other thing that I'll speak about in my portion of the lecture is that we can always retreat with VEN-G. I mean, what we don't have is a lot of information about PFS2, um, but, you know, I think both are options, and I think it also, you know, similar to the other case, comes down to patient preference. Um, I think for patients who are really motivated to do a time-limited therapy, um, they, these are both options, but I certainly counsel my patients with TP53 that their PFS is likely going to be on the shorter end, but, you know, still acceptable for some patients who are really looking for that time-limited approach. Fair enough. I think that's good. So, absolutely. So, I think um, uh, I think they're effective in higher-risk CLL. Continuous BTK appears, as you said, have a little bit more robust efficacy in the deletion 7TP and TP53 CLL, but obviously still really good with VENG, right? So, so clearly uh, way far better than what we did with chemoimmunotherapy. Now the overall survival of these patients is twice what it used to be on chemoimmunotherapy. So both are excellent options. And hopefully when we talk a little bit more about other oral-oral uh, combinations, maybe we could still offer time-limited in those higher, higher-risk patients. But no role for chemoimmunotherapy therapy whatsoever. Can I, can I add one thing, though, to that sure. point, just to kind of question a little bit what Matt presented? You know, when we, when we look at the BTK-based data like that Allen paper, what we never, ever see is that the same study population stratified by the TP53. So I'm just curious to the group, if we look at whatever trial or whatever comp compilation of patients stratified by P53 status, I, I would sort of argue you see those curves split as well with the BTK inhibitor-based therapy. So I'm not so sure the story is that different for one versus the other. And I, I do agree with Callie. I don't think the jury's out at all um, on that because I think with VEN, you have to really think about PFS too when you factor in retreatment, and that probably makes the playing field even. So I think it's still a a very wide open question at this time. Agreed. I think it's just that we have longer longer data with the BTK inhibitors in this setting, but as we gain more data with the time limited in our higher, higher risk, I think that we'll be able to get a better sense of how that goes from PFS to then time to retreatment in their second PFS. So stay tuned for that. But again, no role for chemoimmunotherapy in the, in the very, very high risk. Okay. Um, so when we counsel patients on prognostic factors, I think, again, as alluded to early, really important to test for these prior to starting any therapy. Uh, if it's not tested at, at initial diagnosis, please, please, please make sure 
that you're testing prior to starting initial therapy so that, you know, you can adequately uh, select uh, appropriate treatment regimens depending upon their IGHV status or obviously whether or not they have high-risk TP53 or a deletion 17P. So really, really important. And this is CLL Society. Again, there's a toolkit to also help and aid that uh, for our patients. For So no chemoimmunotherapy for TP53 or deletion 17P. Uh, unmutated, again, we tend to move away again also from chemoimmunotherapy. Uh, and we're going to talk about the IGVH mutated with the uh, more updated data from the ECOG 1912 study. So possible uh, chemoimmunotherapy still, but we will talk about that updated data. So now, uh, what about favorable risk disease? So again, same woman, 74 years old, uh, same disease, but now she has a mutated IGHV. So favorable, she has diabetes and well-controlled hypertension. Uh, recommendations, continuous BTK therapy versus time-limited VENG, uh, any role for chemoimmunotherapy. I can tackle that um, just to start. So 74 years old makes it a little bit easier for me because um, the debate about whether or not this patient could be cured with FCR is over once they kind of cross that age 70 time point. Um, I don't think that this patient would be an FCR candidate. In 2022, I, I think the use of chemoimmunotherapy, even in a favorable risk younger patient, is diminishing over time. We all talk about it. None of us do it. Um, if we added up all the FCRs we started in the last five years, it would probably be under five patients, except on a clinical trial mat. And so um, I think the role for chemo is is quite um, insignificant here. I wouldn't give BR to an older patient. We've already seen the CLL-10 data. So I think it boils down to the same conversation. It's probably a wash between continuous or the time limited, although I would argue the VENG seems to perform the best in this particular patient population. So if there was an argument for time limited, this patient would probably have the the greatest potential outcome. Fair enough. Uh, so obviously I agree. The time limited is very a great option for this person with favorable disease so she can get off therapy. But again, you're going to still have that conversation about whether or not they can do that uh, depending upon monitoring and ability uh, that they can come in back and forth and have TLS monitored closely. So continuous BTK is certainly an option for them as well. Um, and, and clearly, when we look about the goals of therapy in our patients with CLL, you know, we have continuous BTK therapy. The goal of therapy is disease control, uh, prolonged PFS, and this is independent from response or MRD, and then fixed duration venetoclaxobinutuzumab. So the goal of therapy, really disease eradication, prolonged PFS, and undetectable MRD as well. Um, so obviously our therapies are a little bit different, uh, and they, but uh, depending upon the goals of therapy and when you talk to your patients, they have these great options. Uh, and so you want to review these potential goals with them, of course, and empower their decision-making. So very important. Now, what about age? We talked about that she was 74. Um, as as, as uh, I'm getting older and got my 20-year <laughs> member for ASCO, uh, it doesn't seem so far away. But let's say you're 58 uh, and you have symptomatic CLL uh, and you have diabetes and well-controlled hypertension. Again, same disease characteristics, uh, mutated, so favorable, uh, continuous BTKI therapy, uh, plus or minus an anti-CD20, time-limited venetoclaxobinutuzumab, any role for chemoimmunotherapy in this younger mutated IGHV, given the data? Matt, I'm definitely throwing this to you. 
All right. So, you know, this is still the one scenario where I think it's worth a discussion about chemoimmunotherapy because with FCR, there's very long-term follow-up, sort of 12 to 15 years, suggesting that about 60% of patients with mutated IGHV will still be progression-free with that very long-term follow-up. And so for someone who's 58, who we want to hopefully get three decades more of life, like, you know, we don't know for sure yet that we can get them three more decades of life with novel agents only. And so the idea, even if they're not functionally cured with FCR, of maybe getting them many years of remission before starting the clock with the novel agents, I think is very appealing for many patients. Now, of course, that needs to be counterbalanced with some of the risks of chemoimmunotherapy, particularly around cytopenias and infections. I think that's been particularly salient over the last couple of years with COVID-19. There's been a lot of hesitancy in, in using FCR. Uh, and then, of course, also the risk of secondary myeloid malignancies, uh, which, which is important, although it's a low risk. And so, you know, from the ECOG 1912 study that I showed you the update on, there have been three cases of MDS AML in those young patients. So it's 1.7% of that population. And if you look sort of across the board in CLL, there's a higher risk of MDS and, and AML, even in patients who are untreated. And it's something inherent about the disease, which is probably in the range of 1% or so. Uh, and so there is some increased risk of MDS AML with FCR, but I don't, I think it can be exaggerated sometimes. And so if you counsel your patient about that risk and they really like the idea of this short course, six months of therapy, I think it's a reasonable option to discuss. Fair enough. Um, so clearly, uh, you know, this person obviously has multiple uh, options to consider, and, and certainly, uh, clearly the ECOG 1912 supports the abrutinib data, but time-limited approach for a younger, fitter patient, of course, and getting off of therapy, many of our younger patients really would like to have a time-limited approach to be off of therapy and not on continuous therapy. Um, so certainly that, uh, and the role for chemotherapy, although albeit as um, as Anthony suggested, has been diminishing. This is certainly the area where we'll discuss that uh, because they are younger, fitted, uh, younger fit and time-limited and can undergo uh, some of the, the rigorous myelosuppression and some of the infectious complications that you can uh, receive, of course, by uh, having FCR therapy, but usually they're the ones who can do this. So certainly I think it's a conversation, but now we have lots of options, and so many of our patients choose not to have chemotherapy, of course. And then, of course, the intriguing data with the update of the ECOG 1912 that recently was published, uh, updated uh, by Dr. Barr and team in blood, um, is with the data regarding the mutated and the uh, in FCR versus abrutinib rituximab, now showing a slight difference in the curve in the mutated subset. Um, and so again, so this brings up, you know, the role of chemoimmunotherapy, even in the younger, fitter, mutated patients, which is traditionally what we talk to them about and still offer that as an option. But clearly now the curves, there's a little difference even in the favorable uh, with ibrutinib rituximab over FCR. Anybody want to comment on that as well? I'd love to throw in a few comments. Cool. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really shy away from chemoimmunotherapy, even in the mutated patients. Um, it, you know, number one, I do think it cures some patients, but I would actually disagree about the risk of therapy-related myeloid neoplasm. So it was 2% in E1912, but we don't have that much of a follow-up. And so when you get a TMN from an alkylator, the median time for onset is five to seven years. So, you know, every study is different, but I think we still could see more events. Um, it is very hard to quote, and a lot of it depends on how well these patients are followed. Um, anyway, so that's one reason I really just avoid it, um, unless a patient's super motivated, very averse to going on a novel agent, can't afford a novel agent. I've never actually seen that. I'm always able to get these for my patients one way or the other. Um, and then I also, you know, at least with E1912, I'm not that impressed with the plateau, but, um, you know, because it's already dipping below 60% um, with only, you know, this many years of follow-up. So I think we'll see, but it's something I avoid. Fair enough. 
<laughs> um, I do, I do want to mention though, you know, uh, and, and obviously I, as we go through other studies, um, uh, we, we shouldn't undermine the toxicities of the targeted therapies as well. I think some of the uh, GIVE and some of the other studies, you know, show that there's reasonable infectious and other cancers that develop with other uh, therapies, and so we need to keep that in mind. Uh, and then, again, the CLL Society, we thank them, again, for all the resources that, that can help inform uh, our patients and others. So um, please, uh, you know, please use that, uh, you know, uh, website if you want to refer patients uh, or yourself uh, to, to get up-to-date information and for toolkits and things that could be uh, helpful when patients are embarking on their journey. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Coombs. And she's going to talk about next generation strategies, novel combinations, and cellular therapy. All right, thank you. So I'll be uh, speaking on uh, the future of CLL. Um, and I uh, am excited to first speak about novel combinations. And so we've seen um, from Dr. David's presentation that um, continuous BTKI in addition to venetoclax with obinutuzumab lead to excellent outcomes. However, we can always do better for our patients. So a number of novel first-line combination strategies have been developed. Um, so one big category is chemoimmunotherapy-based. There have really been phenomenal outcomes of combining ibrutinib with chemo regimen, such as the IFCG regimen or the IFCR regimen, um, and this I plus G followed by IFCG regimen. But due to the toxicities that are a huge concern for me, albeit rare, um, are um, main focus is actually on these chemotherapy-free regimens. And so... Um, a ton of uh, data on I plus V that I'll be discussing, um, in addition to a number of triplets of abrutinib with Venobi, and then these newer generation BTKIs with Venobi. Um, lastly, I'll briefly speak about the Sequoia data of Xanu plus Venetoclax. So there is a wealth of clinical rationale for combining BTKIs with BCL2. Um, so this first came from preclinical evidence of synergy, but we can also see it in our patients. These drugs work in different ways, and so continuous BTKIs can work phenomenally well for bulky lymphadenopathy. However, they don't clear the marrow very well. However, venetoclax does that. And so um, in addition to that, there's also these largely non-overlapping toxicity profiles. And so these agents, in theory, could be very safely administered together, um, though, of course, we do still see toxicities. Um, when you're using two different targeted agents, there's also the potential for uh, reduced likelihood for resistance to develop. And because of these deep responses that can be achieved, there is a potential for highly effective time-limited therapy. So the first study I'll discuss is the phase two CAPTIVATE trial. Um, this was a large study um, that combined abrutinib and venetoclax. There were two different cohorts, and so the fixed duration cohort all patients got a three-cycle abrutinib lead-in followed by 12 cycles of I plus V. Um, there was also this separate MRD-guided cohort, and following those 15 cycles, there was an MRD-guided randomization where patients with confirmed undetectable MRD were randomized to either placebo or abrutinib. Notably, this was a very strict definition of undetectable MRD, so patients had to be negative by both peripheral blood and bone marrow on two or more assessments three or more months apart. For patients not meeting this definition, uh, they fell into this other cohort and were randomized to either continuous abrutinib or continuous I plus V. Here we get a look at the best undetectable MRD rates from this CAPTIVATE trial, and we can see very high rates of undetectable MRD for all patients, including those with high-risk features. 
uh, dialing into these higher risk patients, um, we can see high rates of MRD, including in those with the TP53 mutation or DEL17P, though there's a curious um, discrepancy between peripheral blood and marrow testing with a lower rate of MRD clearance in the bone marrow, um, though this is only in 29 patients. The unmutated patients perform uh, phenomenally well on this regimen, um, achieving rates of 90% uh, undetectable MRD in the blood, 80% in the marrow. So looking at the PFS curves, we see also very high rates of progression-free survival. The one exception is that the patients with DEL17P do have a bit more in the way of progression events. However, at the two-year mark, 85% of them still remain progression-free, um, demonstrating that this is really an effective regimen for all um, sorts of CLL, um, uh, but the TP53 patients do have a bit more in the way of relapse. The GLOW trial came out at EHA last year, and so this is actually now a randomized trial of the I plus V regimen against chlorambucil and obinutuzumab. The huge difference between this study and Captivate is that this was conducted in an older or unfit patient population. So patients either had to be 65 years or older, or if they were younger, they had to have a higher cumulative illness rating score or a depressed creatinine clearance. Captivate was under 70. And so I would just take this as the unfit um, or older population. Um, nonetheless, abrutinib plus venetoclax uh, had a vastly superior progression-free survival. Um, it reduced the risk of progression or death by 78% compared to uh, obinutuzumab and chlorambucil. Additionally, I plus V had higher rates of CR and CRI, both by IRC and uh, investigator assessment. There were a lot of really nice MRD correlatives to this trial, and so they um, assessed MRD both in the peripheral blood and the bone marrow by um, uh, uh, looking at the 10 to the minus 4, which is kind of the traditional level that's been looked at, but also 10 to the minus 5. And so the key findings from this slide are that um, over half of patients on the I plus V regimen attained MRD negativity, and there was very high correlation between peripheral blood and bone marrow. Also, of the patients that did attain MRD negativity, the great majority of them did at the 10 to the minus 5 level. Contrasting um, the other regimen, uh, obinutuzumab and chlorambucil, number one, there's a, a quite a bit of a discrepancy between the rate of MRD, MRD clearance between peripheral blood and marrow. This has been seen in a number of other studies of anti-CD20 drugs, which are very effective at clearing the peripheral blood, um, but less so um, the marrow. And we also see on these uh, G uh, chlorambucil-treated patients that only about half of them are getting to that really low level of MRD to the 10 to the minus 5 level. Another interesting study that's been published recently is the CLL2-GIVE trial. Um, and so this was solely conducted in patients with that highest-risk CLL with DEL17P and or TP53 mutation. 41 patients were enrolled, and this was a time-limited approach with abrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. And then patients had the option of continuing maintenance abrutinib if they did not attain a deep response. Um, they met their primary efficacy outcome, which was a 58.5% rate of CR, and at final restaging, 78% of patients in the peripheral blood and 66% in the bone marrow had undetectable MRD. The PFS rates at two years are really excellent for this high-risk population at 95%. Um, the OS rate was also 95% at two years. 
So now we'll move into some novel triplets. And so this study was led by uh, Dr. Davids, um, uh, looking at time-limited acalabrutinib with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. And um, this study uh, showed uh, very excellent levels of response, both by traditional IWCLL response, but especially by um, bone marrow MRD assessments. We see increasing rates of CR, CRI with subsequent cycles. And the other really uh, nice finding is that the rates of CR and undetectable MRD with this regimen were similar regardless of TP53 and IgHB mutation status. The MAGIC trial is one I'm really looking forward to. This was named after Matthew, Anthony, and then Jeff Sharman, who's not here. Um, It's going to be a large phase three study of about 750 patients um, that'll test um, a new combination of acalabrutinib with venetoclax in the phase three setting um, compared to uh, traditional venetoclax obinutuzumab. The one caveat to the VENG arm is that actually there's a built-in MRD assessment. So among patients who are MRD positive, they uh, continue venetoclax for another 12 months. Those who are negative stop. And then there's a similar endpoint um, within the AV arm at the 14-month mark. Those who are positive continue A plus V, and those who are undetectable stop. All patients will end therapy at 24 months, and then the primary endpoint here will be PFS. And this maybe could bring in a new standard of care if positive. Um, The next uh, very active combination is xanabrutinib with venetoclax, and this was RMD of that Sequoia trial that Dr. Davids had presented. This is a planned cohort of 80 patients. However, at ASH in December, we got a look at um, the first 36 evaluable patients. Of these patients, the overall response rate was 97%. There were only 13% of patients that achieve CR. However, this rate is likely to go up given that only 14 patients have been treated uh, with at least 12 months of the combination uh, Z plus V. Also, there are a number of other patients that otherwise would have met criteria for CR but had not had the uh, necessitated bone marrow um, to meet that uh, criteria for response by IWCLL guidelines. So I think this is likely very active and I'm excited to see longer follow-up. The other novel triplet I'll speak about is the Boven regimen. And so this is Xanabrutinib with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. The study was led by Jake Sumerai, um, which has uh, extremely high rates of undetectable MRD. It had a uh, very interesting design where they had pre-specified um, undetectable MRD endpoints in both the peripheral blood and the bone marrow that if they were met, the patient could stop therapy early. And so of the 37 efficacy of valuable patients, 33 of them, or 89%, uh, were able to achieve these milestones and then stopped therapy after a median of 10 months, which amounted to eight months of the triplet due to uh, the xanabrutinib lead-in. Um, So a huge consideration when doing these novel combinations is safety. Um, And so, you know, we've been using Venobi and the standard of care for a long time. I plus V is a bit newer. um, But, you know, I I do think we really need to be careful um, with the patients that we're selecting for these regimens once, you know, they're more widely available. Um, But there are high rates of um, toxicities uh, with the combination that do appear higher in this older unfit population um, that was tested in phase three setting for this GLOW trial. Um, but um, overall, um, highly effective regimens, um, but we do need to consider the patient's fitness when um, considering these therapies. Well, what are the current recommendations? In the relapse setting, the NCCN guidelines for second line and beyond therapy 
recommend a calibrutinib, abrutinib, or Venar as category one therapies. And this is regardless of whether the patient has a DEL17P deletion or TP53 mutation. However, when thinking about sequential therapies, there are a lot of important considerations. And so the first is toxicity and intolerance. Um, so most of the real-world data has come from um, longer follow-up of abrutinib-treated patients. But in these studies, BTK discontinuation rates are around 40%. And, and the discontinuation is almost um, always... Um, driven by toxicity in the majority of events. Um, we do know that AEs are greatest in the first six months, um, and so it's just important to watch uh, your patients, check in with how they're doing, and see if uh, their therapy can be optimized by supportive measures uh, to be able to keep them on an effective therapy for as long as possible. Disease progression, of course, is another concern. So when using a continuous targeted agent, um, resistance um, seems pretty universally inevitable. And at least with covalent BTK inhibitors, we know that mutations such as the BTK C41, C481S mutation confers resistance um, to all covalent BTKIs. Lastly is this category of double refractory CLL. And so this is the term that's been used for patients who have been failed by both a covalent BTK inhibitor and venetoclax. And there are really just few good options out there for these patients outside of clinical trials. The median time to discontinuing the subsequent line of therapy for patients who have had a prior BTKI and BCL2 or death is 5.5 months in one real world study. So delving a bit more into this intolerance issue, um, one strategy that's proven very effective is changing patients over to a newer generation covalent BTK inhibitor. And so this study by Kerry Rogers at The Ohio State University shows that using a calibrutinib among patients with abrutinib intolerance leads to an overall response rate of 73%. And very encouragingly, among the AE that led to abrutinib intolerance, the great majority of patients did not have a recurrence of that AE um, upon exposure to a calibrutinib. Among those who did, most of the time the event was at a lower grade than before, and it was never at a higher grade. Mazdar Shadman also um, published a similar study looking at xanabrutinib in the setting of prior BTKI intolerance. Most of these events um, were patients with abrutinib intolerance, so there were a couple of calibrutinib intolerant events. Uh, but he found very similarly that the great majority of intolerant events did not recur upon exposure to xanabrutinib. Venetoclax is another very effective option, not only in abrutinib intolerant patients, but also abrutinib refractory patients. And so uh, Jeff Jones published this trial of uh, patients with prior abrutinib, but they were really refractory. They actually had a median of four prior therapies, almost half had DEL17P. Um, but venetoclax showed a promising overall response rate of 70% with a PFS around two years. Um, so this is uh, certainly an effective therapy. Venetoclax here, uh, this is an older study, was studied, uh, it was used as a monotherapy. And so now that we're using a lot of venetoclax in the front line, um, there have been reasonable concerns raised about, well, if we change the sequence and do venetoclax before BTKI, will BTKI still work as well? And so this work led by Anthony shows that in patients who get venetoclax and then get BTKI afterward, that there are high overall response rates and durable remission seen. So it is highly acceptable by uh, my view to do BTKI after venetoclax. 
Um, the story is a bit different among uh, patients who had had BTKI in the past. And so the one subset where this is really not an effective strategy is patients who had a BTKI and then came off for CLL progression, had venetoclax, and then one tries uh, BTKI again. And the PFS here is four months, so not very effective. However, if a patient um, in that situation, say, had abrutinib, then venetoclax, um, but they stopped the abrutinib for intolerance, that can be very effective, um, as shown by the darker blue uh, curve, if they were to change to a newer generation. Um, and so we also have evidence for this um, from follow-up of the Murano trial. Um, so, of course, this is Venar in the relapse setting. Um, I think, as you uh, may know, the Murano study was primarily post-chemotherapy patients based on when it was conducted. So very few patients had had BTKI um, as part of this study. And so this sub-analysis looked at um, what, how did patients do that relapsed, needed another therapy, and got a BTKI. Um, among the 14 patients on the VEN-R arm that got a subsequent BTKI-based therapy, there was a 100% overall response rate. So just more evidence to support changing that sequence is totally acceptable. Well, one of the newer questions that we have is what about trying venetoclax again? And so this study led by uh, Matt is um, one of my favorite names of any study, Revenge or Revenge. Um, and so the idea here is take a look at patients who get ven G in the frontline setting, um, patients do have to have a minimum of one uh, year of progression-free period following their therapy, and then they get treated with VEN-G again. Um, it's split between two cohorts, and so the first cohort is patients who have a pretty good remission, meaning two years or greater, um, and they get the standard 12 cycles, uh, so one year total of venetoclax. Um, cohort two is uh, those patients who had a suboptimal remission of one to two years since their last uh, dose of the fixed duration Venge. And those patients get uh, six cycles of the Venge combination followed by 18 cycles of Ven monotherapy. So the next uh, class of drugs that I think has brought a lot of excitement in the field are non-covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, so abrutinib, acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib, all of those require wild-type C481 to form their covalent bond and have their optimal activity. Um, and so when that residue is mutated, these drugs really don't work. You can't switch from one to the other. Um, so pertabrutinib is a newer non-covalent or reversible BTK inhibitor that binds at a site completely distinct from this residue. So whether it's mutated or not, the drug should be able to inhibit this important target. Uh, Anthony presented updated data um, from the Bruin Phase 1-2 trial of pertabrutinib. This analysis specifically focused on patients who had had a prior BTK inhibitor. This was 252 patients, so just a huge cohort. The waterfall plot shows almost everyone had reduction in their lymph node size. Using uh, IWCLL criteria, the overall response rate was 68%, and responses were seen really regardless of whether the prior BTKI was discontinued due to progression, which was three-quarters of these patients, toxicity, the other quarter, or regardless of other prior therapies. Additionally, the presence or absence of this BTK C481 mutation uh, was not predictive of pertubrutinib benefit. Nemtubrutinib is another non-covalent BTK inhibitor that has demonstrated robust and durable uh, responses. Um, and so Jen uh, Wojak presented uh, the updated data from its trial. They had 38 patients with CLL and SLL that were efficacy evaluable at the recommended phase two dose of 65 milligrams daily. And they found a 58% overall response rate. So another interesting drug to follow.
The last class of therapies I'll discuss are cellular therapies, specifically CAR T cells. Um, we uh, got a recent uh, publication from uh, the Transcend CLL004 trial. This is uh, using lysocell, um, and it was a pretty heavily pretreated population. So patients had to either be failed by or ineligible for BTKI, have high risk disease, meaning uh, failed two or more prior therapies, or standard risk disease, failing three or more. And the overall response rate was 82%, and a uh, very impressive rate of CR, 45% of patients achieved CR, and that was typically within a month or two. Looking at the PFS from uh, this trial, the median PFS was 18 months, and then among this uh, very high-risk group, double refractory patients, they had a median PFS of 13 months, um, which clearly represents an advance over um, our current standard of care options. So with that, I will um, hand uh, the baton over to uh, Anthony to uh, talk about our cases. Great, great presentation, Callie. I actually learned some new things from that, so um, wonderful job. Um, I'm going to talk about some cases now that are um, exploring the new combinations and the next-gen agents. And I think I'll start the first case with you, given that you just lectured to us on this topic. So this is a 55-year-old uh, patient named Jonathan who presents with symptomatic treatment-naive CLL who has high-risk features. They're symptomatic per IWCLL criteria, no major medical comorbidities, including normal renal function. Um, in terms of the baseline characteristics, the white count is 95,000, uh, the hemoglobin is 10.8, and the platelets are 72. They're unmutated for IGHV. They have a complex karyotype. They have a TP53 mutation by next-generation sequencing, and the patient is walking in the door sort of asking the question about time-limited options. They've heard all this great data. They are adamant about not being on CLL-directed therapy indefinitely uh, until progression, and so they're thinking about how do I stop at some point in time. Um, so maybe you can just give us an overview. We sort of have talked about the continuous BTK inhibitors versus time-limited uh, VENG, and then kind of weave in the role for the novel, novel targeted therapies. How do we approach this young guy who wants to stop? Yeah. Um, so, of course, a continuous BTKI is an option. He's walking the door saying that is not an option for me. Um, so I think there is a role for time-limited VENG as far as our, you know, FDA-approved options. I'd already mentioned um, I consider that uh, an acceptable therapy even for my TP53 mutated patients, but it's with the understanding that we have a median PFS of about four years. Um, I do think that these uh, novel time-limited doublets are very attractive um, for patients in his situation, young, no major medical comorbidities, and the PFS that we have, which admittedly is shorter follow-up, looks really excellent, including in patients with uh, this uh, high-risk um, uh, level of disease. So um, I'm personally not doing I plus V off-label, but I am very enthusiastic about the trials, um, and I do think it would be something I would consider. Um, it's also just attractive because it's an all-oral regimen, and you, you know, don't have to worry about um, infusion reactions, which can be, you know, problematic, especially for people with this high level of Y count. So I think it's very attractive. I, uh, I think he'd be a great candidate for I plus V, or, you know, um, I'm also very enthusiastic about the, the even newer uh, covalent um, uh, combinations. And just as a follow-up. Great follow for a trial. Yes, exactly. Of course, a clinical trial. Just as a follow-up to Matter, Nicole, one thing that kind of struck me when I was looking at the data that Callie presented was that there was not a single slide yet that compelled me that a, a patient like this would absolutely benefit from a triplet novel combo over a doublet 
novel combo. Either of you guys want to agree or disagree or end comment? Yeah, I can, I can start. I mean, I, I agree with that, that we don't have data on that question yet. We will yep. hopefully at some point yep. for the CL, uh, CL311 study. So this is a randomized trial we haven't talked about comparing AVO to AV as a doublet, also with chemoimmunotherapy in there. It's probably going to still be a while till that study reads out. But yep. to me, that's the probably the most informative about doublet versus triplet. Yeah, I, I do. I think we need to figure out who a, really a triplet would benefit over a doublet. And I, I don't think we really know that yet. So... And then, of course, the recommendations, I think Callie already um, reviewed this uh, in detail, uh, are the continuous BTK inhibitors. We could consider those, and I think many of us would think about that, but this patient is not interested in a continuous approach. Uh, and then, of course, the novel, novel combinations, which we've already seen the robust data presented. Most of the data have come from the ibrutinib plus venetoclax combination, but certainly interesting um, acalabrutinib-based data we saw and uh, zanubrutinib-based data as well. Okay, so now I want to change the story a little bit. Now, this patient's similar age, similar uh, disease presentation with a similar typo that we've pointed out already in terms of their ALC difference, uh, and they're ultra-high risk, but now they're presenting with significant comorbidities. This patient has um, atrial fibrillation. Let's assume that they also have hypertension, and the patient is still adamant about having a time-limited option for the management of his uh, disease, Thoughts about replacement of a next-generation BTK inhibitor for ibrutinib, and can you truly counsel the patient? Maybe I'll start off with Nicole. Can you truly counsel the patient that those risks, cardiovascular, recurrence of AFib, hypertension, so on and so forth, are diminished enough that it's worth the acceptable risk? Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is an important question because we deal with this. I mean, he's young, but we deal with this in our older patient population as well. So clearly, this is where when I'm thinking about if they have significant cardiovascular risks, then I'm thinking about a second generation. Um, but certainly for somebody who wants a time-limited approach, then you could think about that as well. So because then they would benefit by coming off therapy. So if you're thinking about a next-generation BTK plus venetoclax, then they would be off of therapy for a year. doesn't mean they couldn't potentially have risks that could happen during that year of therapy, but that's one option. And certainly, of course, venetoclax obinutuzumab is certainly an option as well because that then sort of you go around the cardiovascular risk factors altogether. Uh, but you have to talk about the, as Callie had noted, you got to talk about the differences of the PFS might be a little bit shorter perhaps with VENG versus uh, oral-oral combination. So if you're going to do a BTK in this individual, I would do a next generation, and then I would kind of think of a time-limited approach, um, or VENG would talk about the fact that the PFS might be a little bit shorter as well. And then Matt, as a quick follow-up, just to help us generalize your AVO data, would a patient like this who had a significant cardiovascular history be eligible for that particular study? Yeah, I mean, we were fairly liberal with the entry criteria. I mean, patients could not have had a serious cardiac event, I think, within six months of starting on study. But if they had a more remote cardiovascular history, and even if they had a history of AFib, they would be eligible. That being said, we probably only had a couple patients like that on our study. So I think there's still some questions there. Great. Um, so you can see the recommendations here of what we discussed, including the selection of next-generation BTK inhibitor-based therapy as well as um, whether or not um, we could consider those next-gen therapies incorporated into a VEN-based time-limited option. Uh, we've heard a lot about that data from Kelly, so I don't want to spend any more on that. Uh, Matt, just one quick comment to you since we're self-advertising a lot tonight for the MAGIC trial. Can you just sort of explain uh, that trial one more time and sort of how whether or not this patient would be a good fit for that study? 
Yeah, so I, I think this patient would be a good fit. You know, again, the cardiovascular issues make me a little more concerned about the potential of being randomized to a BTK inhibitor arm, but because it's a second-generation BTK inhibitor, we do know from the head-to-head -head studies, at least with single agent, that there's lower cardiovascular risks. And so, yeah, I think this would be a good good candidate for the trial and will help to understand sort of head-to-head -head whether Venobin, you know, how that stacks up to a BTK inhibitor uh, in combination with venetoclax. Wonderful. Um, so this is Mark. He's an older patient, 68. Uh, has symptomatic CLL, and he's relapsing after a fixed duration therapy. Unmutated for IGHV, has some comorbidities, including hypertension and COPD. And just to give you a little bit more uh, information on the treatment history. So pretreatment CT scans um, uh, were initially performed to assess the burden of lymphadenopathy, and TLS risk was assessed. Uh, the patient was initially treated with VENG. So this is sort of getting at the question about how successful is venetoclax or venetuzumab as a time-limited therapy when thinking about uh, next options. So they achieved a remission after one year of treatment, so they got the whole year of venetoclax without an issue, and then three years later, they returned to the clinic with progressive lymphadenopathy and night sweats. And so this is kind of, I'm going to throw this back to Callie, this is kind of the age-old debate. The patient is novel, is, is BTK inhibitor naive, but we also have venetoclax um, rechallenge on the table. How would you sort that out for this patient, and what would you actually do? Well, I think they're both reasonable options. Um, I think something that would be important for me is how did he do on the venetoclax, and if he tolerated it well, I would be very much in favor with rechallenge, um, ideally in the setting of Dr. David's study. Um, but, you know, if he, say, had a lot of toxicity, which I don't find that often, aside from the neutropenia, which I find is usually manageable, I also think it would be fully acceptable to put him on a covalent BTKI. So what would you actually do? Uh, I'd rechallenge. You'd rechallenge. And then, Nicole, if you, would you rechallenge, yes or no? And then if, if you do, Question is, you know, informed consent in practice often allows us to share data with patients about how successful we think something might work. What data would you quote for success or failure for Venry treatment based on what we have right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, our, our best data really comes from the Murano study in terms of, you know, although that's the relapse setting, but certainly there's there's more data for rechallenge with venetoclax in that setting. Um, you know, uh, clearly one concern, although again, hopefully this will be addressed by Matt's study, uh, is if the dur remission duration was much shorter. So if uh, if he, you know, relapsed within a year uh, finishing completing therapy, you know, I'd be a little bit more hesitant in that setting, and certainly a clinical trial would be warranted in that. And I, and I probably would, outside of a clinical trial, would offer a BTK. Uh, but certainly, uh, retreatment, I think, of VEN is reasonable if they've had a long response duration. And there's no reason, if there's no other more, you know, comorbidities or something new with regards to how we handled the VENG in the first place that you could certainly rechallenge. But that's where most of the data comes from because those individuals, uh, certainly, uh, now a, a nice subset of those small have been rechallenged, and certainly um, many of them have gone back into remission. So that's encouraging. But we need longer follow up on the retreatment for sure. So in terms of the recommendations, we've discussed either selecting a covalent BTK inhibitor as a standard option. I think there's at least good retrospective data to support that sequence or venetoclax retreatment, and I think the debate is out. Um, certainly the prospective data from the REVENGE study and others will be very helpful to sort that question out. Matt, when will we see that data presented? No, I'm just kidding. It just <laughs> um, so uh, now uh, we're going to talk about Mark again. What if he progresses on second-line BTK inhibitor? So here's the case. You see the treatment history, um, VENG followed by progression three years after end of therapy. So this patient then goes on to a um, covalent PTK inhibitor. They get a calibrutinib, but progresses again two years later. So 
This really gets to the patient population that Callie was defining. This is a double refractory patient. They've been exposed to two different classes, BTK inhibitor and venetoclax. We don't think that those would be a great option. The data from John Seymour suggests a um, poor outcome for this patient with standard of care. So there's a laundry list there. Um, start with uh, Matt on this case. You want to talk to us a little bit about um, what you would do for this particular patient? Yeah, these are some of the most challenging patients that we're seeing now. This is sort of a whole new area of high-risk CLL, even irrespective of TP53 status. And this is clearly a patient I'd try to get on a clinical trial. Uh, we've had some great results with the non-covalent BTK inhibitor trials, so that might be sort of a top priority. Uh, if there's a CAR-T study, that's also very appealing. You know, outside of that, if you had to give standard of care, you know, you, you could try a PI3 kinase inhibitor. Anthony, you've, you've shown some retrospective data suggesting that the durability of those responses is very short. So I'm not optimistic about that. Anecdotally, we've had some success in patients like this who are even refractory to venetoclax and a BTK inhibitor on their own of doing combination therapy of BTKI plus, plus venetoclax and at least seeing a transient response. But at, at 68, you know, this is a patient where I might even also be thinking about allotransplant as a, as a next step if I can get them back into remission because I'm, I'm very worried about this patient. And then, Callie, since you kind of brought up the term double refractory, I feel there's this there's going to be this new lack of standardization in the literature. There always has to be something that isn't standardized for patients who are either exposed to these drugs or truly refractory to these drugs. And just looking at this patient, I'm thinking about it a little bit more, I guess Ven retreatment would have, could have been an option here. So how would you actually define double refractory in terms of risk for patients? Yeah, I think when you presented the case, you were suggesting you couldn't use Ven, but then we both re-looked at how it's written. Yeah. I think Ven would be acceptable um, yeah, with how it's okay. written as opposed to what you may have initially thought it said. Um, I think refractory should be defined as someone who progresses on therapy or has just a very unacceptable remission. Um, so what's that cutoff? I don't know, six months or a year. Yeah. Matt, what's your cutoff? We can yeah, pro vote. probably one year. Yeah. Okay, Nicole. Yeah, agree. Okay. Six months. I would say even six months. I think they might do okay with then monotherapy. I certainly wouldn't give them time limited again. Um, I I wouldn't be super enthusiastic about it, but I think it might lead to some response. I don't know. And then Matt, in the world where we have CAR T and Pirto available to this guy, how would you make that recommendation? Because that's kind of where we're going to go next. Yeah, I mean, I would say that although the response rates have been quite good with pertubrutinib, if you look specifically at the subset of patients in that study with double refractory disease like this patient, the median PFS, correct me if I'm wrong, it's about 18 months or so. It was near, it was exactly the median PFS essentially, or very close to what you gave us from the CAR-T data. It's sort of a yeah. very similar. No, CAR-T, double it's 13, months, 13 but yeah. Same range. They're both small numbers of patients, yeah. Right. The, the thing, though, is that with CAR-T, like we do expect there may be some patients with very long remissions because of sort of the immunologic effects of CAR-T. You know, we, we don't have very long-term follow-up. So that is kind of one appealing aspect of CAR-T, but we just have such little data on CAR-T and CLL. It's, it's hard to know. And I will say, yeah, I mean, just to jump in there, um, obviously totally agree. Um, and the thing that I regret not going into a bit more is CAR-Ts are pretty toxic. So I do think that's where for an older patient, um, pertubrutinib would be uh, very attractive. It has almost no grade three or higher events. The rate of discontinuation among the 600 some patients, including um, the B cell NHLs uh, from the phase one, two trial was 1%. So only six patients discontinued. So, you know, I think they're probably equal-ish based on what we know, um, but I think Perto probably wins from toxicity. Um, but maybe if he were younger without comorbidities, CAR-T might be more attractive due to this potential for a longer term response. But, you know, that only happens in a minority of patients. And then to Nicole, we're sort of living in this world where we're getting a lot of guidance from regulatory bodies. The FDA recently came down pretty hard against the class of PI3K. We still have them available. 
How do they fit into your practice? How would you use them in 2022? Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I still think there there's obviously um, some real efficacy with that class, and I, I think that we still need them. Um, so I, I think it would be wrong to 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 get rid of PI3 kinase inhibitors altogether, because certainly, as you've seen, that some of these patients blow through all of these different types of options, and and uh, you know sometimes we can use some of them as bridging opportunities from one therapy to even another clinical trial. So it's important to have all available different classes of therapies for our patients. And I can flip what Callie just said and go, well, maybe we should give that older 68 car T first because we can't give it to him if he's much, much older. That might be more problematic and then go to a non-covalent. But, but you could see you could do more than one thing because you would be concerned about the toxicity of CAR-T in a 68-year-old, let alone if he was 75. So eventually somebody like him might relapse through all these therapies. And so you, need, you still need to have some of these other agents um, to, to use. So I think that you know PI3s, even though not ideal in this individual, uh, is certainly something that, that you, would, you might have to try as well. And then in the world where you're thinking about bridging therapies, you know, for a patient like this who never saw chemo and you need a bridge to go to cellular therapy, would you use PI3K or chemotherapy as your bridge? Do you have a preference or experience? I've used and certainly if they had TP53 aberrant disease, I'd use PI3K. I think if they didn't, yeah. you could make yeah. an argument either way, although, you know, there's really little data with chemo in this and, Yeah. And, and then Cal Callie already brought this up, but this is just uh, data um, for uh, the lysosol product in uh, relapsed refractory CLL, just highlighting the adverse event profile. Certainly to give cellular therapies, it does require a certain level of expertise. When we're thinking about rates of CRS and neurotoxicity and other more common toxicities, um, they're not insignificant. And certainly to make this therapy successful for patients, you need to be aware of these and need guidance. How to manage either or, which is sort of out of the scope of today's presentation. And then finally, just circling back to uh, the CLL Society, there are expert uh, consultations available to patients. So there, if a patient is in a situation where they may not have access to a CLL expert, there's always opportunity to apply for a virtual consultation for a CLL expert to give guidance on their particular case. So with that being said, um, thanks to everybody. Great presentations, great uh, discussion of cases, and really candid feedback on how we're managing our patients. And I'll turn the tables uh, to the Q&A that's coming from the audience. Uh, and so um, let me just go down the list. Let me throw out the first question here. Um, okay, I, I'm going to reshape this a little bit. When we're thinking about continuous therapies, so the BTK inhibitors, can one ever expect for their CLL to go into a long or deep remission? And is there any opportunity to stop a continuous therapy kind of converted to a time-limited therapy? I'll open that up to anyone. Uh, I'll, I'll take it. Um, uh, there, there is some data from the E1912 follow-up. So among the patients that had to discontinue abrutinib, um, most of the time due to toxicity, um, they followed them to see when they progressed. And on that recent publication uh, that Matt shared, um, the median PFS is 25 months until they um, progress, and not all of them even need a therapy right away. So I do think it can happen. Um, do I randomly stop people? I, I don't. But if I have someone, you know, with an event that makes me think stopping is the best thing, I'm not hesitant to do so, and I don't just put them on another therapy unless um, there's evidence that they're progressing. And there's, just to add in, and there's data, obviously, with longer follow-up from the resonate from the abrutinib data. There's no doubt that the longer somebody stays on a BTK inhibitor, their response does improve over time. And so there are a subset of patients who continue to do develop a complete remission and probably, um, you know, could 
you know, potentially, I'm not sure that study will ever be done, but later on, you know, possibly could get a long response duration if they stop therapy. I mean, typically we would probably think of these people as a more favorable risk. Uh, certainly, you know, we'd be a little bit concerned with our higher risk individuals. And obviously in the earlier data with the multiply relapse refractory, when we took patients off of BTK, they would get flare and there would be a lot of issues with that. Um, and so that was a concern with taking them off therapy. But there probably are some individuals that definitely would have a long response duration and could be off therapy for sure. Next question I'll throw out to the group um, is a patient who's asking the question, if I'm on ibrutinib as a continuous therapy, it's going well, but my ultimate desire to, is to get off. Is there data for adding on to the ibrutinib to induce MRD? Here they're specifically referencing venetoclax. Yeah, I can start with that one. So there is a study that's been ongoing at MD Anderson. It's been presented a couple of times exactly looking at this question of patients on longer-term ibrutinib, adding in venetoclax, trying to get them into an undetectable MRD state, and then stopping. And they've been quite successful at getting patients to stop. I think it's around three-quarters of patients have been able to stop. I think the question right now is how durable is that time off therapy, and they just don't have long enough follow-up yet to answer that. But I think the initial studies look promising. And there were some data with monoclonal antibodies as well added in later, too. And you, too. That was your study. Although <laughs> umbrellism is tough to come by now. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but I do think it, all of these studies bring up the concept of add-on approaches to convert um, potential suboptimal responders to deeper responders and then stop. You two work just fine, and, and the venetoclax strategy seems to work fine as well. Um, okay, this is a tougher question. What's new and exciting for patients with PLC gamma 2 mutations? And then just add on to that, from your experiences, are the noncovalents a good fit for that patient population? Anyone, please weigh in. This is a, a tough one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I personally, I don't think we ever did the sub-analysis from the Bruin trial, but I can say at least one of my own personal patients did have a PLC gamma 2. I was reluctant to put him on the study, and he responded really well. Um, it, so it can happen. I, I will say it doesn't make total logical sense to me, but um, I've seen responses. I don't think they've been enumerated from uh, the phase one, two trial. There aren't that many people with the PLC gamma 2. You may know more than me, but um, I'm not hesitant to put them on covalent, non-covalence because I've seen it work. Um, and in my patient situation, we had no other options. The only thing I can say is there was a small subset of patients who had both BTK and PLC gamma 2 mm -hmm. mutations, and that did not appear to impact the overall response rate. Matt, any speculation why that might be? Is it a subclone question or... Yeah. It could be. I mean, most, most of the time, these mutations are not 100% penetrant, right. and there's there's variation. So you may be getting response in some of the cells that don't have that mutation. Sure. But yeah, it's it's hard to know. Okay, another question, a sequencing question. Um, here, you're going to have to patch together a lot of data sets to answer this. If you're thinking about two potential sequences, continuous BTK to venetoclax time limited or ven time limited to continuous BTK, is there any data to support which approach would be best for patients from a efficacy perspective or PFS? Okay, silence means you know, agree. I don't, I don't there's certainly that. no prospective data. I, was about, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't even think there's really any retrospective, yeah, very no little, so I agree with you guys. Um, let's see. I've, this is about a specific patient, so I, I'm going to read it, and then we can decide if we want to answer it. I've been a watch-and-wait patient since 2014. What happens to the immune system once CLL patients begin treatment with BTK inhibitors or BCL2 inhibitors, let's say not together, one or the other, I'm very concerned that my immune system will further be compromised after treatments. The real question is, does the immune system eventually recover when on these therapies or when you come off these therapies, or will my immune system be compromised forever? I think it's a very good question. 
Anybody want to tackle Nicole? You want to start? You know, we, we talk about the fact that um, that if we treat patients with you know who need active treatment for their CL, that certainly the, while they're on therapy, that certain the therapy itself can make their immune system worse, um, or that their infectious complications can increase. And we and certainly with chemoimmunotherapy, we used to see this. And then after they were done with chemoimmunotherapy, <coughs> their immune system was better improved. Uh, but I, I think that it's a fair question that even though we'd like to say. For instance, we, we have, there's no doubt with um, some of the studies, particularly with chronic continuous BTK inhibitors, there's still about a 20 to 30% infectious complications for sure. That's chronic continuous therapy, of course. And, and of course, even with time-limited therapy, you can have, um, with venetoclax, you can have infectious complications. Uh, we, we hope to believe that when you're off of therapy that your immune system will be improved. But I got to say, I don't know that that's entirely true. Um, and maybe you guys can, but I, I think that, you know, um, uh, I think it's a concern. There's no doubt. So I always tell my CLL patients that uh, whether they're on, if they're on chronic therapy or they're getting time-limited therapy, that the infections can still occur. And that's something we need to monitor for even when they're done with therapy and that we need to manage accordingly. So uh, now, obviously, you have the addition of the uh, you know, the CD20 monoclonal antibody, and clearly that there's an issue there, but we'll have to see with the oral-oral combinations uh, if that's different in a time-limited approach, and will the infectious complications still be the same when they're further off of that time-limited approach with the oral-orals? But my concern is that they'll still have infectious complications, and we just need more data. Matt, I, oh. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know if there's a ton of data, but I believe at least there's one study that I think does speak to perhaps um, being off therapy could improve um, the overall immune health, which is, um, and there may be more than this, but the one that came to mind is um, from Israel looking at COVID vaccine responses. And so the people with the absolute lowest rate of response were those who were on active therapy. The medium response was untreated CLL, but the people actually with the highest rate of antibody production was off therapy and in remission. And I don't remember how they define that, but I don't know. That gave me some optimism that maybe people who are off therapy for a while, at least in the context of making antibodies to vaccines, um, you know, may have some hope. Um, I don't know if anyone there else. There definitely was thoughts. some studies also, they're small, looking about immune reconstitution. But what, what we're talking about is, does that translate into clinical yeah, no, frequency of infection? And, and I think, we, you know, our data is just limited. Very good point. And the other interesting data that have emerged over the last couple of years is that even patients with MBL, monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, a precursor to CLL, have higher rates of infection compared to the general population. So they have a tiny burden of disease, and yet they still have immune dysfunction. So I, I think it's still kind of controversial if you're getting patients with CLL into remission. And logically, it makes sense if they have less disease burden, they should be at a lower risk of infection. But I'm not totally sure that's true, especially based on the MBL experience. And thank you so much for the questions. Thank you so much to, for the speakers uh, for giving us excellent presentations. And uh, thank you so much for being here tonight. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the CLL Society. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JJJ860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AbbVie, AstraZeneca, and Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC.